Bifurcation of income is one of the world's great challenges alongside things like terrorism, environmental concerns, pandemics. Have things gotten any better, do you think? On the margin, because you know there's about 200 million cryptocurrency wallet holders in the world today, which is two or two and a half percent of the world's population. And if you map that over the internet adoption, that would be about 96, 97. Uh, so it's still very early. Kiara, and welcome to the very first episode of the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nessie, and today I'm talking with Jaunty Kelt. Jaunty is the founder of Fantail Ventures, a venture capital business that has invested in some of the biggest names in crypto, including Kraken, Ledger, Stacks, Yield Guild Games, and Uniswap, just to name a few. In this conversation, we talk about Jaunty coming out of the University of Otago and getting his start in finance and the role of education in tech. He was building an online advertising business in the early days of the internet, and his business was eventually acquired by Google. Jaunty has strong feelings about blockchain adoption providing a financial lifeline to the underbanked and how digital ownership is just getting started. He's an advisor for the teams behind Vivi, the NFT marketplace, and also Fluffworld, an altered state machine. We wrap up with Jaunty's views on blockchain regulation in New Zealand, and he gives us his thoughts on who Satoshi is. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jaunty Kelt. So, Jaunty, welcome to our first episode, and uh, thanks for participating in this uh, audio experiment, hopefully uh, the first of many. Cheers, Jeff. Good to be here. To get started, I wanted to ask you about some of your younger days. Uh, you went to university in Otago in Dunedin. Uh, are, you, are you from that area? And uh, how, do, how do you go from Otago to founding a venture capital firm in New York City? Sure. I actually grew up farming in the King Country, originally from Hawke's Bay, but um, you know, my sort of middle years, teenage years were in uh, the King Country, Tamaranui. Um, and I went to boarding school in Auckland and actually went to university here at Auckland University for my first year, studied law here. But the allure of Otago and all the fun that apparently was being had down there was too much to resist. Okay. And uh, so I had four very fun years down there. I like to hear that, yeah. Uh, it was more about fun than study, I've got to admit. Um, but yeah, I ended up with a finance degree and a marketing degree, double major commerce, and then a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy. And, you know, come 1994, I realized I needed to start figuring out what I was going to do with my life. And uh, so I opened a computer for the first time in the um, computer labs at Otago University and, and started to create a CV, which took a long time and was very confusing. But uh, Ended up working in banking uh, starting 1995 for Macquarie Bank. They were just setting up over here, Australian Investment Bank. Um, I went into banking for no other reason than I didn't really know what to do and it seemed like a, a place to learn some professional skills and so on. Yeah, working in Auckland or Macquarie Investment Management, working with Jim McClay, who was the ex-Deputy Prime Minister, who was Chairman of Macquarie New Zealand, uh, setting things up and basically making the coffee and doing all the things a graduate should be doing, but learning along the way. And during that time, the internet was sort of starting to take off. And uh, I went on the web, I think the first time in 1996, and just started to read about it. And having always been quite entrepreneurial, I uh, was very attracted to uh, the, the potential of the internet to, to the technology industry writ large but in particular the internet so yeah long story short i ended up uh living in london early 99 and starting a technology company uh in what was then the dot-com boom uh co-founded with a friend of mine it was in the digital advertising space not knowing much about technology or building a company but jumping feet first into the fire and figuring it out as we went and yeah. ended up working at Google by way of acquisition of one of the companies I was involved with and then uh, ended up worked as an executive at a company called Palantir Technologies, which is a uh, big data company out of Silicon Valley founded by Peter Thiel. Um, and then about five years ago, went full-time investing with Fantel Ventures. Yeah, you've made quite a few quite a few stops. So you didn't start using a computer until your time at university. 
Yeah, I'm a non-technical founder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but hiring technical people, building technology companies, I mean, ultimately it's about partnering with and hiring the leaders of your technology group and, and you know, holding them accountable and trusting them to, uh, to build teams and, and good technology. So that, you know, that comes from, you know, I guess instinct and pattern recognition. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's partnering with actual technologists. Right. Um, but yeah, I've worked in the technology industry now, I guess it's for about 24, 25 years and, um, I didn't do a computer science degree. Right on. That, that's great. And what a success story for you and for others that maybe think that in order to come through and be involved in the tech industry, you know, you have to be that nerdy kid in the basement who's been programming since they were nine. Uh, you hear a lot of stories like that. Well, I think I would point out though that, you know, someone with technical skills and some uh, human and business and communication skills is the, the ultimate package. Um, you know, you look at someone like Elon Musk who actually has a computer science background but also has figured out the business side and, you know, depending on the day, is quite good at communicating with humans. Um, <laughs> right. You know, that's ultimate. And, and really that is kind of table stakes these days. I mean, you know, not many people in my era were even given the opportunity to, to learn technology in a, in a sort of a, you know, university setting. You know, it just wasn't the norm. These days, it's very much the norm. It's kind of obvious if you're a young person, there's this huge industry which is moving the world forward. And if you want to participate in it, there's a hundred ways to get involved from a technology perspective, educationally, you know, outside of university. And so I think that's, you know, my, my journey is probably less common these days. Less common these days. Yeah. I think yeah, nowadays it's absolutely essential. There's definitely a big push as someone who works in education, there's a, you know, a massive push to onboard people early and often there's a ton of technology funding and research available as to whether it is helping or whether it hits home. I think uh, we're still a bit maybe too early in the curve in terms of education, but definitely we should be immersing everyone, I think. But another point on that, I mean, hard technical skills are obviously very important, um, but without the ability to communicate, motivate, manage people, uh, the hard technical skills go nowhere. You know, so there is always this combination of mindsets and experiences that are going to create value in the world and actually make projects see the light of day and potentially even scale to be something impactful on the world. Um, and, and also there's a, there's a friction between, you know, the, the traditional sort of four or five year university degree, which one could say is a bit of a luxury item these days and some just hard vocational training around topics like product management or UX or design or engine uh, software uh, building, which can be used much more quickly, you know, and, and take a lot less time and investment opportunity cost of your young and productive years, you know, so there's, there's a real conversation around that. I mean, Peter Thiel, as you may have heard, actually has a scholarship that pays people to leave university and start a company. Okay. I hadn't heard that specific detail, but uh, I do know that uh, a lot of the major tech companies have dropped having a degree as their requirement, uh, you know, in terms of hiring newcomers. And I mean, that really speaks to the trend, like computer science itself, I find to be really interesting, maybe computer science and cooking, I think kind of go hand in hand, computer science, uh, you can iterate so quickly in what you're doing with a computer in, in, in any form that you get immediate feedback and you can improve upon it. And in terms of the learning path, that really helps you strive for more. So it's almost like you've got gamification going the whole way. And I think cooking is similar because every day you can cook a new meal and you can learn if it was good and you can maybe try to make it better and you can learn if it was bad and try to think about what happened. And then tomorrow you get to start again. And so computer science has this very fast process of iteration. And I think, you know, ultimately the tech companies have realized that you don't need three years at some big box place with a top down structure uh, in order to come because they're just going to ask you or put you in some training program and ask you to help with whatever they're doing as well. So I think computer science is unique that way. And I completely agree that, um, 
for new people coming in, it should be portfolio based and not necessarily, you know, uh, credential based. Hmm. Well, that goes one step further also to, you know, actually starting something and, and building something or thinking about it for many years, you know, and you can think about it at university for many years and you may be completely happy doing that, but these are very important opportunity cost years, the most productive and, and, and so on of your life really. And so having a real sense of like how much you're investing in that versus actually doing something. And not everyone's going to start a company, but a lot of people, a lot more people think about starting a company than actually do. And, you know, one of the rules of my life is don't sit around thinking about it, go, go do it. Right. Cause when you do, of course, you're going to make mistakes and it's going to be terrifying, but you're actually going to learn something. Very, very wise words. Do you think that uh, someone who's in high school today, uh, who's in school looking to study a topic at university is also maybe considering that there's a lot more aside from a traditional university path? I think so. Yeah. These, this concept of four years of your young productive time being you know, sitting in an educational institution, uh, you know, learning some stuff, but is it is the juice w worth the squeeze? You know, are you really getting the most from that time? And, you know, at the very least, if you're going to sit in an educational institution for four or five years, you should be doing things on the side that may be very vocational and practical and, and, and finger in the socket. Um, but everyone's different, right? You've got to understand what your motivations, you know, how you, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, but if you've got anything of an inkling to, you know, participate in the real world and even start a company, and a company just starts small, right? It's a small project and it's an experiment, but experiments grow into something. Um, then you should probably get started with that sooner rather than later, even at high school. And you can, right? The cloud-based world enables you to plug into services and, you know, get started for, you know, not much money. That's right. I yeah. When and I started my first company, we had a a whole corner, a quarter, I think, of the, the floor space we had for our team was actually a room full of whirring machines because we were hosting our own infrastructure. Cloud didn't exist, right? So it's never been easier to start a company. What was that and when was that? Yeah, so that was uh, nine, uh, 1999. Um, and it was actually the first company that I co-founded, I alluded to earlier, um, and it was a digital advertising platform which helped uh, websites to partner and refer traffic to one another in return for commissions. It's called affiliate marketing and, you know, we had idea arbitraged, which is a nice word or phrase for effectively copied, uh, a company that was doing the same thing in America. And we were the first to do, launch it in Europe and it was, uh, it took off, I mean, we, you know, it was right in the dot-com boom. And we built a team of 30 or 40 people quite quickly and raised a bunch of money. And, um, yeah, we learned a lot. Uh, unfortunately, in our uh, naivety at age, what was it, 26, 27, oh, wow. the dot-com crash hit, which basically stopped any kind of further funding for a period of time. And we actually had to close that business, uh, which was quite painful. Um, and you know, talk about learning curve uh, and starting something and feeling the other side of that. It was it was very instructive. Uh, a lot of companies, you know, ended up in the same place in the dot com crash. Um, but as painful as it was, it was probably a, a really great learning experience and sort of you know, it's very strong memories to this moment. Was that right at the start of online advertising? Would that? Yeah, it was. So Google didn't exist. At least the monetization side of Google. Didn't right. Exist. Um, in fact, there were other companies that were doing paid search before Google, which Google effectively copied. A company called Overture, which was bought by Yahoo. Um, there were wet, there were display ad type advertising models where there were you know, images on websites that people would pay a sort of a fixed tenancy to to sit there for, and then CPM, which is right. When, when you say it like that, it sounds incredibly oh, it like archaic. Yeah. Right? But digital advertising today is one of the major business models for the web alongside e-commerce and software as a service. And there are others as well. And of course, the cryptocurrency world and how tokens work is just a whole evolution of that. But digital advertising, I spent about 10 years in that. Um, that, you know, that company, obviously we moved on from that company and I, I helped set up a, uh, 
US-based, Chicago-based uh, digital advertising business that was focused on paid search. Um, and that company, so I set up that business in the UK and, and we've grown it for about a year and a half when that company was acquired by a uh, New York-based digital advertising company called DoubleClick. And then we became part of DoubleClick for you know, a few years through to the acquisition of DoubleClick by Google. Um, and so, you know, I worked at Google for a couple of years and uh, that was about 10 years in total, focused on digital advertising right. as a business model. Uh, which is, you know, one way to pay for the service that you're trying to offer your audience. And so in the early days of that, did people think that that was an insane business model or were people generally receptive that, yeah, we're going to need advertising or we can use advertising as a useful source of revenue for online content? Well, advertising is a, is a controversial topic because most consumers don't like it. Right, they'd prefer not to have ads. Sure, ad but, blocker. Yeah, let's go. But most consumers also don't want to pay for content. Right, you can't have both. Uh -huh. So you know, these days, of course, there are subscription models which tend to be ad free. Although some of these subscription services also have ads thrown in there as well. But you know, back in the period that I was just referring to, I mean, uh, advertising existed in the non-digital world: TV, radio, print, etc. And so it was very logical that it should exist alongside content to help make that content free, keep that content free. So I think, you know, consumers accepted it, but it was very interesting working within Google and, and kind of seeing how they did it. What does good look like? I mean, Google is <laughs> one of the most successful technology companies in history. Right. So and, if I can just jump in here, yeah, uh, you were at Google in about 2008, 2009. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, as as you already said, your business in Chicago was acquired by DoubleClick, mm. which then got folded into Google. So I had a look um, back at what Google was doing in 2008 and nine. So in around that time, 2006, they acquired YouTube. 2007, they debuted Street View. 2007, they also acquired DoubleClick, which is where you, you came in. Uh, 2008, they launched both Google Finance and the Chrome web browser, which reflecting on like these are all home runs maybe with the exception of google finance um although it did stick around for quite a long time uh so what was it like being in that fold at google for the those couple of years yeah, well google was already a you know very exciting and successful company in 2007 when it acquired double click and so it was very cool to be becoming a part of that and and sort of seeing how the sausage was made and you know working with really talented people and you know it was a it was a big ideas place you probably heard about the 20 percent time it was yeah. quite a revolutionary yeah. concept that one day a week you know you could work on whatever you wanted to work on you know the food at the time was was a very big deal free food at google like breakfast lunch and dinner and everything in between you know there was the google 20 which you were going to Put on if you is that pounds or kilos? Pounds? Uh, probably, probably <laughs> pounds. <laughs> Google, uh, Google. Anyway, it was it was a it was a very interesting and 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 sort of stimulating place to work. But you know, the main event of Google was paid search, and they'd cracked the code on that, and actually weren't as dominant, nowhere near as dominant as they are today in paid search. I mean, you know, back in the sort of the two thousands, you know, Google was fifty percent, Yahoo was thirty percent. Uh, Excite, eSpotting, other Ask Jeeves, random search mm -hmm. engines that also were actually competing quite well for paid search, but Google just iterated and built a better service for consumers and consumers just trusted Google more. And so that, you know, and that was powering Google's cash flows, right? The, only, the purchase of YouTube was inspired because they recognized that video was going to be a big thing and YouTube was still a fairly small move seemed like a big company in 2005 but it was you know, by, by all standards quite small um it has grown to be a juggernaut of course um double click was a big deal for google um, and by the way google's acquired hundreds of companies and by then it had acquired you know a hundred or so you know and, right and some of these are small tuck-in acquihire type others are larger and most of them had, didn't work you know youtube worked android worked double click worked 
I mean, there have been others. I'm, we're talking about that particular era. Um, but DoubleClick was interesting for Google because Google owned paid search or was on the way to owning paid search, but they didn't have display, which included video to monetize YouTube, uh, display, and uh, rich media, which was a for an ad format back in those days. And, um, you know, to have both of those, to be able to complete the, the sort of ad spend uh, mandate for advertisers and track what was working what wasn't that was kind of a big deal for for google so yeah it was an interesting place to work and ultimately it's about people my whole career is you know yeah it's partly about technology and and non-human things but really i mean ultimately none of this happens without humans and people and the relationships you build and and you know some of my colleagues from double click that were acquired in that transaction still work at google and vp senior vice president roles and they're happily going about their business and others stuck around for a short period of time and started other companies and went on to build venture capital businesses and all kinds of things. I mean, the Google mafia, just like the PayPal mafia, just, right. you know, there's mafias coming out of any successful company, right? In New Zealand here, Zero is a successful technology company. You know, if you looked around at where some of the early Zero founders, executives, et cetera, and where they've ended up, you know, it's, it's, it's very helpful for an ecosystem. In fact, it's probably the most important thing for an a burgeoning and growing technology ecosystem and you need success to you know teach others how to do it and to grow with that and so google was one version of that have you seen that with zero here in new zealand yeah i mean i haven't done some sort of you know a mapping of where all the yeah. zero people is but i just instinctively know for a fact that you know zero was the first major success technology exit in new zealand i mean Maybe there were others before it, but it certainly was a modern and impactful technology success story, which early investors did very well from, founders and employees did well from. And so there's a financial element to that, pouring back into the New Zealand ecosystem. But more importantly, there's a know-how element that's pouring back into the New Zealand technology ecosystem. And so yeah, I don't know where all these people are right now, but for sure they'll be right. making a difference in the growing of, of this this industry. And Silicon Valley went through that itself, you know, some decades ago. You know, every city, country's technology ecosystem starts with a bunch of boffins in a back room, <laughs> bright-eyed and thinking about the future, right? And no one really believes them and everyone actually eschews them. And I mean, I felt that very much so when I was starting out in the technology industry, we were, you know, not important. Um, but very quickly uh, with success, there's like a positive flywheel the capital, the talent, the know-how, and and the industry builds. I mean, every city is trying to be on that journey. And I would argue that New Zealand sort of really had a moment when Zero had a successful IPO and has grown from there. And there are many others that are, have now done the same and, and are on that journey. And so from Fantail Ventures' point of view, um, are you split between New York and New Zealand? And does that even matter these days? It doesn't, no. I mean, just to answer your question, like probably about 80% of my investments are in America and the majority of those are in the New York area. But, you know, I have a good handful here in New Zealand. To, to your question, it used to matter. You know, investing was a very person-to-person, -person, physical presence, analog, you know, only do invest with people you know in countries and jurisdictions that you understand okay and you know that has changed hugely in just 10 or 15 years you know this u.s venture capital firms in even like 2008 9 10 you know they were really not comfortable investing in non-american companies and preferably in founders that had worked within american technology right. companies. and that's so not had, too long ago yeah it's not long ago at all but, you know, technology can be made anywhere. And the cloud, again, is a massive impact on this because you can plug into these amazing cloud-based services from anywhere in the world. And that's probably the main reason just, you know, entrepreneurial teams anywhere in the world could access this really powerful stack, the internet stack, and associate services through the cloud and build, get building. And so, yeah, venture capital companies well, venture capital companies emerged in other countries that were doing really well. And so the US 
venture capital firms started to you know look offshore and you know it was sort of the, the odd investment initially but now they've the good ones at least have got you know proper offices in multiple places around the world and it's a very global uh you know dis- distributed you know and, and obviously covid with you know virtual virtual teams virtual meetings all the stuff has has really you know changed the game in this respect so so that that's a good thing for new zealand by the way right. of course because new zealand always suffered from the tyranny of distance but with technology theoretically less so but certainly in the recent years and, and with covid uh much less so so in terms of uh Building businesses and advising startups. Um, do you take any different approach for someone here in New Zealand compared to elsewhere? And like, what's your advice for some small group of students coming out of university with a big idea, maybe coming out of Otago, maybe coming out of Auckland? Uh, what, what would you say to them mm. in terms well, of a global well, village type of Well, the principles narrative? are still the same. Whether I'd be helping someone in New York or someone in, in Auckland or Dunedin. Um, you know, understand what your what problem you're trying to solve. Sometimes it's not a problem you're trying to solve. You're just trying to add something positive. A problem implies negativity, right? But whatever you're building, make sure you understand who it is, the individual user that you're trying to help, and how many of them there are. Um, you know, niche markets can create nice little businesses but if you're going to build something why not try to build a big business so hopefully there's a lot of these like-minded people that could do with your help right so that's about sort of basic market assessment but then the second thing is get started building something that you can offer to some yeah, small, sure. small number of those don't build a battleship and take 10 years because it's probably going to be completely wrong and you're going to waste a lot of time and money you know, get something out to them asap and then iterate from there Let's switch and talk about blockchain and NFTs. This is a blockchain podcast after all. Um, so you gave a talk in 2017 for Kia New Zealand. Uh, and in terms of tech, you said, it really worries me, tech's role in the bifurcation of income, the haves and the have-nots. You went on to say tech is part of the problem and part of the solution. Also referencing the unbanked. Uh, somewhere around 2 billion of them that don't have a bank account or a financial relationship. So I paraphrased that a little bit. Um, in terms of the last five years, have we made progress? And is blockchain technology helping, do you think? Mm. So bifurcation of income is one of the world's great challenges alongside things like terrorism, environmental concerns, um, pandemics, um, Social media, I would say, is one of the world's great concerns. Um, but bifurcation of income, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, uh, that I think what I was referring to back then was more of the secondary effect, uh, which was technology companies that could uh, address a global audience uh, from one place using cloud-based technologies and the internet, right? And you know, a small group of people who do that successfully, all power to them, can essentially win global, win a global market. That didn't used to be the case before the internet. You know, you'd have winners in many cities, small local areas, countries, maybe pr- across country. But like, you know, Airbnb, for example, you know, if you're trying to compete with them, that's going to be a tough job. They've won it globally. And so a very small group of people have reaped the rewards of that. So you could argue that is adding to the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. But I think the, the primary reason for the rich getting richer, poor getting poorer, which actually relates back to Bitcoin and blockchain is central bank policy. Um, the printing of money, the uh, debasement of fiat currency, which is again, basically the printing of money, um, erodes the purchasing power of people that are hourly rate earners and who only have cash and not assets that can benefit from inflation. Okay, so that's most people, the middle class, let alone the lower class. Um, the rich benefit because they have assets and assets appreciate in an inflationary environment. So the, the main culprit for the bifurcation of income, just to be really clear, is central bank policy and the inadequacies of fiat currency. 
Um, so, you know, just a leap from that to, uh, to blockchain. Uh, but in particular, Bitcoin, you know, in learning about Bitcoin, I first bought some Bitcoin as an experiment maybe eight years ago. A uh, small amount, you know, trying to learn by doing. Um, learning about Bitcoin made me really understand our current financial system uh, and how fiat currency works and how modern central bank monetary theory works. Um, you know, Bitcoin shines a light on all of that. Um, all of that, what we've, what's got us here has done a great job in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we're lucky to live in this prosperous world we, we, we live in, even though there are a lot of problems. Um, but it's also got a lot of frailties and negative impacts. And, you know, that's partly about the debasement of fiat currency for anyone who earns an hourly rate, the middle class and uh, lower socioeconomic. They are just losing purchasing power over time. Right. And, and yeah, I agree. And to be clear, the age of people that owns assets is creeping up and up and up. Like you said, the assets can benefit from inflation and can survive the storm. But on your hourly rate, uh, you know, the number of people on that hourly rate, again, that's, you might think used to be just reserved for people's first or second jobs or part-time gigs, um, but, but not necessarily so anymore. So I've, I agree with you 100%. And I, I don't think it's a jump to go from talking about that to talking about blockchain or Bitcoin for exactly what you said is that when you start figuring out, well, why is Bitcoin popular? Like it, it, we, 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 we can't seem to turn away from it. It's, it's everywhere you look in the media, you know, like why is, it, why is it so popular? And digging into the details, as you say, definitely shine a light on the reasons behind uh, why Bitcoin is there. So maybe just to come back to my question, has, have things gotten any better, do you think? Uh, on the margin, on the margin, because you know there's about 200 million cryptocurrency wallet holders in the world today, which is two or two and a half percent of the world's population. And if you map that over the internet adoption, that would be about 96, 97. Uh, so it's still very early. Which all your listeners should hear me say again: it's very early in the adoption of blockchain and cryptocurrency and digital assets. Um, but it's a lot. A lot further along than five years ago. Like five years ago, I don't know what the number was, but it would probably like twenty percent of that. Um, you know, and and at this point, it's not an if cryptocurrencies are going mainstream and digital assets are going to be adopted by individuals, companies, corporations, municipalities, and countries. Right? It's not an if; it's just a when. And you know, if you look at growth rates and you extrapolate out, we'll probably get to a billion cryptocurrency wallets within three to five years. And then you look five years past that and you think about S-curves and how quickly people adopt once things start to go mainstream, you know, you get into the billions within 10 years, in my view. That's just, that's just a certainty at this point. Um, and so, yeah, we've come a long way in five years. It's, it, you know, what is it? Crypto, a week in crypto is a year in a normal economy. <laughs> Definitely a lot happens. It seems like headlines are made all the time. Maybe just to come back to Bitcoin though for a second, because as your listeners will know, Bitcoin is, you know, the hardest form of money. And that's why it shines such a alternative, maybe negative light on our current system. Um, and the concept of debasement of uh, fiat currency and cash for the hourly rate earners, um, you know, that's, a, that's an insidious and slow moving, almost invisible uh, degradation of one's wealth in the developing developed world economies, right? Um, if you look to some of these developing world economies, in particular ones that have been mismanaged, such as Argentina, Venezuela, Turkey, and you see inflation rates of, you know, 10, 20, 30% or more, you know, Bitcoin's not just a fun investment conversation about whether I should, you know, allocate some investment dollars to Bitcoin, right? It's, it's the only thing to save your financial worth. It's, it's hope. And so, you know, it's, it's a very powerful topic. Um, and, and then, you know, the next point is, uh, the financial system as we have it today excludes probably two thirds of the world's adult population, the unbanked. Anyone now with a mobile phone in their pocket connected to the internet theoretically can access financial services provided by the cryptocurrency 
entrepreneurs. And that is a real cause for hope. So yeah, we've, we've come a long way in five years, but it's still very early and the user interface in, uh, in crypto is still very clunky. Like my mother, most of my friends still just can't get their head around it. Right. That's a problem. But think about the internet in 96, 97, 98, when you first went onto a web browser, it was some version of the same. And so Ken, uh, you've, you've talked a lot about how it all comes back to people. Can people be, the, can people solve this, this problem? Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Humans, it's like water in a roof, right? They're going to figure out how to get in and, and make it work. Um, I have absolute faith in that. Not only do the technologies get more powerful, but the amount of talent, smart young people, capital that are, that are working on all of these problems. And, you know, I think a lot more progress has been made in the back end than there has on the front end. The front end is still very clunky and not ready for prime time, but it's getting there and uh, it's a problem that will be solved. It's definitely uh, front and center criticism is around the interfaces and how many clicks it takes you to do something and how many places there are you can go off course. And perhaps that also leaves you open for security vulnerabilities. Um, in terms of digital assets, there seems to be a headline every other day about people being hacked or uh, about wallets losing funds, uh, funds getting locked up. And this seems to be the reason behind a lot of the negative press is that if you have a digital asset, um, not necessarily a specific digital asset, right? But if you have a digital asset, let's just be general here, then you're going to have security problems or they're very prone to hacks. What do you think about security eventually approving to the point where that's not an issue anymore? It's for sure. It's not if it's when. I mean, you know, the naysayers when the internet was taking off, and then when the dot-com crash happened, all those people that didn't like the idea of it and were very happy to see it crash, you know, it's the, that same mindset and probably those same people that highlight all the negative things about crypto, blockchain, because yes, there are frauds, there are hacks, there are security vulnerabilities, there are black markets, all of these things exist, they always do. Um, they exist for cash. They exist in our existing financial system. There's a lot. There's always negatives that you can call out, um, but they they will be incrementally solved. Not a hundred percent, but it will get better. I mean, I was looking at an article the other day about how it was a it was a takedown of the internet because every web page that loaded used too much electricity. That's too much energy. Too much energy. Yeah, sounds familiar, right? Sounds very familiar. What a, what a great knock against the new technology. It uses too much energy. Let's forget about all the good that it brings or the potential that that energy utilization may improve over time. Let's just ignore all of that. Yeah, so I, th I think the media generally does a terrible job of explaining to the population what this is, where it's going, why it's good, as well as the negatives. And, you know, shame on them because they're not doing a service to their readers. You know, this is a very real mega trend and people should be given the whole story, not the negative story. In terms of the business conversations that you're having, perhaps you're looking for new investments or perhaps uh, you're making partnerships and what have you on the energy issue. Are you finding that you have to explain what's happening? Where do you see people sitting with this? There's a lot of energy talk about something like an NFT uh, not being environmentally friendly. Like, is, does this does this even make sense? Well, I mean, me driving my car here today used energy. You know, us having this podcast used energy. I mean, everything uses energy, including the minting of an NFT or me sending my NFT to you. Um, so that's, that's not a reason to knock anything, right? As long as it's bringing some value, some good. Uh, the only question is how to improve the energy efficient. I mean, it's for everything in our life, right? How we, how do we become more energy efficient? And so there is wide acknowledgement of that within the industry. You know, if you wouldn't meet anyone in the 
crypto world that's not highly aware of this. And anyone who's starting a new project will be bearing that in mind and at the very least trying to, you know, provide some kind of offset story. But ultimately, you know, the kind of layer one mining level, which gets most of the criticism about this. For sure. Um, you know, it's like, where, are, where, where, what is the source of energy? And then what, how it, is the mining happening, right? There's, there's, there's energy intensive ways of mining and then there's less energy intensive ways. So all of these topics are in the melting pot for anyone in the industry. And again, you know, humans pointed at problems with talent and capital are going to solve them. I think that energy is such a complex issue that you just can't distill it down to a headline or a soundbite or an article. And I also think that in terms of Bitcoin mining, it's the electricity that's used for Bitcoin mining. As you said, the source could be varied or the, the source of the electricity of power your miners could change. Um, most of the miners that I know of, not that I know of personally, but they're using electricity at market rates. They're making deals for off-peak power. Um, they're making deals to use renewables and, and things like this. Uh, and generally, they're playing by the rules that we've built for the system that we have. And um, I don't find any credit to comparing energy usage of a worldwide global network to that of a particular country, for example, just because You've done some math and ranked it according to uh, to some list. Oh, it's headline grabbing FUD. That's what the media does. You know, that's why the lack of trust in media is at all time highs and getting worse. Generally, outside of blockchain. Uh, I, I read this tweet that I've been thinking about, and it said, "NFTs today are like going to a party where everyone can see your bank account." Uh, so I've had a look at your OpenSea, <laughs> and uh, I. I can say that uh, you've got some you've got some big and interesting projects in there. Um, especially, you have some uh, New Zealand-based projects. There's some fluffs, some thingies. You have some burrows. You have some altered state machine all stars, as well as a brain and a Genesis box. For those that uh, just completely tuned out and have no idea what I just said, um, what does it mean? Um, and also, what is your definition of an NFT? Yeah, sure. Well, I. To start with, I want to be clear, I'm a terrible collector. Okay. <laughs> I don't collect NFTs and I certainly don't trade them. In fact, I don't trade anything. I'm a terrible trader for anyone out there who thinks they can buy low and sell high intraday, intraweek or intra-year. Like, you're probably kidding yourself. Um, I've learned that the hard way. Uh, unless you've got incredible talent and access to information and technology that enables you to do that basically 24-7, like, don't bother. Um, but buying and holding, being an owner, that's great. You're taking a view on a project. And so for my NFT uh, sort of portfolio, it's it's solely because I'm interested in the actual business that's behind it. Right. What is an NFT? Um, basically, an NFT is a, a code that proves provenance of the only and original digital item, uh, which could be an image, a sound, a movie, I mean, the, a ticket, the, 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 that, the, what it could be is obviously endless. Um, but the point is uh, the immutable record of that on a blockchain proves its provenance and that it is the one and only. And I also then have the right to not only own that, but trade it and transfer it to someone else. And so that idea, which really was popularized with CryptoKitties 2017, and has sort of grown from there with lots of, again, talented, creative people, um, is a sort of a, a blueprint for all kinds of creativity that has a lot of business application. It's also attracted a whole universe of people that actually could care less about cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin, but really love art. And, you know, one of the reasons, you know, there's been a huge growth in crypto wallets is because of NFTs in the last year or so. Um, so the NFTs in that portfolio, I'm, I'm you know, I'm involved with uh, some of the fl centrality fluff world altered state machine project. Yep. Which is a great New Zealand blockchain based uh, company, which doing good things on a global stage. Um, then another one which uh, you didn't mention, but because it's not 
actually uh, available in OpenSea is called Vevee, V-E-V-E, which is a, a digital collectibles marketplace that has uh, basically the rights for known and beloved uh, characters and collectibles with the likes of Disney, Marvel, uh, Back to the Future, and many, you know, famous multi-decade old brands and collectibles. And so they are right, and the, exclusively producing. Like you said, these NFTs. are, uh, sorry, th these are um, officially licensed, right, from the brands yeah. themselves. Yeah, so the founder of Vivi, David Yu, and his co-founder, Dan Crothers, they, uh, David actually has a, a physical collectibles business, which he spent, you know, 15 or 20 years building um, with licenses and trust, human relationships with some of these famous brands um, in mainly North America, but all over the world. And uh, 2017, actually, David connected with me and said he thought there was something interesting with CryptoKitties and blockchain, but he you know, wanted to see if he could sort of bring his business into that. And then you know, he got involved, we, we got involved together and he sort of evolved it from there and created Vivi, which has been uh, a, a real success. Um, you know, two, two and a half million monthly active users and growing very quickly. Um, and, you know, he's plugging into communities of people that are already passionate about these these brands. Oh, is this a Web3 app or is this, well, where does the blockchain come in? Well, each of the collectibles is an NFT. A limited edition NFT, which is actually minted and hosted on the immutable layer two Ethereum blockchain. Okay. Um, so the user experience is through the mobile through a mobile app right now, um, where you can you know buy, store, communicate with your friends, etc. Um, there's an AR experience in there, so you can make your collectible appear in real life and take photos of it and interact with it etc but they're also building a web-based experience uh, but ultimately yeah each one of those digital collectibles is an nft there is only one of that although there may be a, a, a you know they may publish a few thousand of any particular one but each one is not numbered and so you can prove provenance and you can transfer to others i was unaware of vivi so before today's interview yeah i had a look at it i was very very impressed and my first thought was i was blown away that they had this licensing for such big brands uh and then i watched an ama with one of the employees possibly a founder i'm not sure and uh they're doing some some stats on things like users and yeah it looks like it's it's doing very well it's a very successful new zealand founded company doing amazing things on a global stage. Uh, in terms of Blockchain New Zealand, so you're a relatively new member of Blockchain New Zealand, much like myself. Just in general, what do you see as the role of an organization like this? Um, how do you think that we as an organization can advance blockchain technology uh, and education in uh, Aotearoa? Mm, well, I mean, an industry body, which is effectively what Blockchain New Zealand is, should uh, coalesce the like-minded participants of that topic in the industry to understand uh, what it is that those participants, the companies that are members of the organization, uh, need in order to benefit their businesses, to move forward. Now, some so there's many answers to that right well, sure at the very basic level it's a chance for them to network and meet and share ideas that's a that's a human experience which is super important uh but there's also the uh regulatory aspect to a new industry then there is uh marketing and distribution uh that's sort of the more commercial side of it you know how can members offerings be discovered by potential customers I mean, ultimately, I personally find the most valuable thing is, is the community part and networking, and that can be broken out into segments. You know, the blockchain's a vast topic, just like the internet is. You know, so what are the subgroups that uh, people might be interested in where they can really uh, sort of coalesce around and, and then bringing in subject matter experts, collaborations with partnerships with the equivalents in, in other countries, you know, there's, there's a lot that can be done there for the propagation of knowledge. 
mean, ultimately, I think the knowledge piece is the is the biggest one. Regulatory aspect just moves so slowly, and you know, at the you know, the, the the second best thing that New Zealand government can do as relates blockchain is do nothing. <laughs> the worst thing they can do is like regulate against it in some way because for some reason they think it's a threat to society. But the best thing they can do is, and this is really where I'm most excited, is to actually make New Zealand a blockchain-friendly environment uh, for companies to start and, and, and grow. Um, and th that is probably one of New Zealand's greatest opportunities right now. I mean, I would say the same thing about technology industry generally, as you listeners will be aware, the world is short of technology talent. And actually, if you really want to simplify, the, the winners in the technology industry are the ones that can attract and retain the best talent. And so that is our limiting factor. And so how do we, how do we solve for that? Well, New Zealand has a really amazing opportunity because a lot of technology workers globally are well aware that New Zealand is an awesome place to live and would love to come and work and live It's a very good brand, right? It's an amazing brand. I'm not saying everyone would want to, but like there are a, a large number of technology. I mean, we've been working with technology workers all over the world for 20 years. It's, it's, it's a hugely famous place, New Zealand. And if the government could wave their magic wand and, you know, provide let's say thousands of highly skilled software engineers, data scientists, UX and designers to come to New Zealand and work for three to five years, but only if they're working for New Zealand-based uh, technology companies, right. we would solve our technology talent problem here in a heartbeat and at the same time attract amazing technology uh, companies and investment which could be an, an incredible sort of engine for growth for this for this country. Um, and of course, blockchain fits in that overall umbrella of technology industry. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd like to see. If anyone's listening, I'd love to help you make that happen. Sounds like you could have some policy advice. Almost out of time. Are you up for some rapid fire? Okay. All right, fluffs or apes? Fluffs. Snowboarding or kite surfing? That's a hard one. Probably snowboarding. Uh, I might have had a feeling you were into both. I also would choose snowboarding. That's because I haven't done any kite surfing. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your favorite place in New Zealand? Magnify. Will Ethereum ever merge and switch to proof of stake? Yes. And the very last one, who is Satoshi? A very generous open source individual who's given the world a gift. John T. Kelt, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. All right, thanks for joining us. Look out for the next episode of Blockchain New Zealand Podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. Cheers.